let's go ahead and get started. Sorry for breaking up conversations. <laughs> I will uh, pray for us and then we will jump in. So let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious and we are just thankful to, to be here this morning that you've given us another day, another week um, to, to honor you and to, to love you and grow in our understanding of you and your, through your word. And we pray that that is what would occur this morning in the Sunday school hour, not only for, for us in this room, but also for the kids um, scattered throughout the building. Lord, pray that this hour you would use it to, to grow us all in, in our understanding of who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so today we're picking back up in our Old Testament biblical, theologi- biblical theology series after a two-week pause. And we're near the end of the book Dominion and Dynasty by Stephen Dempster. We're going to enter into the, the, the last chapter we're going to cover today. I think we're going to have two more weeks in this study, just so if you're keeping track, probably the rest of July will be in this study before we go to something else. Um, and the last time we met, we began analyzing the, the final book of the Hebrew Bible called The Writings. And we got through the first couple of books, Ruth and Psalms, the Psalms. Now today we're going to move into what is commonly called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. The wisdom literature. I didn't realize this, but there's some debate on what books characterize the wisdom literature. Um, but we're going to go with what, what Dempster goes with. And these are the four books that follow um, Psalms and the Tanakh. And they're, they're Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, or, or Song of Solomon. So Job's, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And these four fall into the, the literary category of wisdom literature, which, which begs the question, what is wisdom literature? Well, wisdom lit- literature develops the theme we've seen in the Old Testament and through this book um, by Dempster, the, the theme of dominion or, or mastery over the world. Or we could say proper ruling of the world. Dempster points out that, that etymologically, the word wisdom and, and related words to wisdom in Hebrew signifies the, the mastery of a skill in a particular domain. We see related words used to, to describe the skill of individuals responsible with making the, the priestly garments in Exodus 28. And, and constructing the tabernacle in Exodus 31. We, we see these words used to describe skill at, at various tasks in the Old Testament, such as uh, singing, sailing, military ability, all in the, the Old Testament text. And these masteries of skills could be described as wisdom, or where we get our, our word for wisdom having wisdom in a particular area of specialty. And the one person in the Old Testament that 
that who, who personifies wisdom the most is, you can shout it out, Solomon. Yes, Solomon, who, who had the ability, right, we saw uh, in looking in the book of Kings, the ability to rule effectively, very effectively, over the kingdom of Israel. That was his, you could think of it as his specific domain of expertise. So it's no surprise then that, that most of the wisdom literature is Solomonic or, or written by Solomon. And this wisdom is not for, for mastery over a technical sphere like, like we saw in the other places. Or rather it's, it's mastery of life itself. Mastery of life it's for life itself. And that's how we and, and the, the biblical authors define the word wisdom. And I'm just going to pause here to pick up a little debate, inside baseball debate. But they're, they're, wisdom literature has been a place that has been more difficult to make biblical theological connections for, for scholars. Which, remember, those are the type of connections um, textual and theological connections that we've been making in this whole series. And it's difficult because there, there doesn't seem to be a development of the plot or, or the storyline in the wisdom literature or, or even obvious commentary on what has occurred in the storyline like we saw with the latter prophets. So I've even seen some biblical theological works just skip over the wisdom literature altogether because the thought is it doesn't contribute to the overall story or our understanding of the themes in the Old Testament. And I think I understand that impulse to sort of just skip over the wisdom literature. And it is true that there, there is less connection here in the wisdom literature than say that the historical narratives or, or the prophets regarding the larger story. But that doesn't mean there is no connection or that the wisdom literature serves no function or purpose in the overall structure and, and meaning of the Old Testament. And this is where I think Dempster is very valuable because he doesn't skip it. He does spend a lot less time on it, about three pages for Proverbs Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Um, but he, he links the wisdom literature to the theme traced throughout um, the Old Testament of dominion, like I, I just said. And that Solomon, in part, embodies what it means to fulfill the call to be human in Genesis 1, 27 through 28, to, to rule the creation and, and exercise dominion over it. So the wisdom literature then specifically deals with this theme with this concern for legitimate and God-glorifying mastery and control over creation. Or we can think of it as how to have proper dominion in a way that, that is pleasing to God and, and that it is honoring to His law. And Dempster also points out that there, there is in fact commentary on the narrative storyline in the wisdom literature that, that contributes to our understanding of the overall text, even though there, there's a lot of claims to the contrary. It's just more of an affirmation of what we already know, or what we've seen in the story so far. And what we're going to see is that by looking at the wisdom literature as a whole, as we get a, a balanced perspective on 
of life, basically life here on earth. Get greater clarity of what we've seen in the narrative storyline. There, there, there are portions of the wisdom literature that can be read out of context, such as maybe portions of the book of Proverbs, that could be used to promote something like the, the prosperity gospel or, or some false teaching like that, similar false teaching. That if you do this or that thing, then that necessitates God's physical prosperity blessing in your life. But reading Proverbs in the context of Job and Ecclesiastes balances what we see there in a way, which we'll see more when we look in those books. But what we're going to see is that living in a sinful world essentially makes things complicated. The righteous are not always physically blessed. And we know death will come for us all. That's the, the, the heartbeat of Ecclesiastes. So there, there, there are times you can do everything right, so to speak, and face affliction and suffering as a result because God has higher plans and purposes for His creation, for His people. So having dominion in a world that is full of sin will result in, in things that don't fall in neat lines. Which is, if, we, if you think about the story so far, it makes complete sense. That's what we've been seeing in the, the narrative of the Old Testament. So you see how the wisdom literature affirms kind of what we've seen in the narrative storyline. But we know and we're going to see that God still has good purposes, good plans, even for the affliction and suffering his people face, which is a wonderful transition to the first book we're going to study, Job. So Andrea perked up like that. This is Andrea's favorite book, so everyone can stare at her. Job. It's the first wisdom book in, in this order of the Old Testament. And it shows the, the unequivocal fact that, that God rules the world, and this rule is of a different order from what one might expect. Dempster argues that the man Job is a great example of a pious man who, whose life is marked or, or characterized by fear of God. And, and he has great physical prosperity. He has massive amounts of wealth and is blessed with lots of land, animals, and family. It's also important to note that, that Job is a, is a non-Israelite. And we see that, that Satan enters the story... And because of Job's great blessing, Job's great prosperity, he becomes the prime candidate for Satan's attack. Although it's important to see that, that in Job 1.8, really important verse, Job 1.8, we see that, that it was God himself that offers up Job for, for Satan to attack. So this is not some device Satan has that is undermining God. This is still God's plan, as we're going to see throughout the book. And the charge Satan makes is that Job would not honor, Job would not fear the Lord if he had everything taken from him. All of his physical blessings, and then eventually, right, his, his health. The implication being that Job only fears God for the things that God has given him. And if he were to have those things taken away from him, then he would no longer fear and worship 
Yahweh. So I felt the need to cough, but now I remembered your microphone comment. <laughs> okay. So, so in Job, we see uh, similarities to, to other Old Testament stories we've seen. You can think of Abraham. Um, similar to Abraham, Job is tested by God by, by being offered up to Satan to see if he will serve Yahweh faithfully despite profound suffering. Where, where Abraham was tested by being commanded to sacrifice his long-promised son, Isaac. So, so Job continues, right, some of the themes we've seen so far in the Old Testament text. He's in line with that line of character. And we see that, that his possessions and children are taken from him. And then later, his health is taken from him. And as the story unfolds, Job is visited by a, a series of his friends um, who, who Dempster argues represent the best of human wisdom. So these guys represent the best of human wisdom on the topics of God, suffering, and, and the moral government of the universe. Or, or why things happen the way they do. These are the great philosophers, I guess you could think of, the day. And what we see by analyzing the, these really long speeches, these lengthy discourses of Job's friends, is that they're all inadequate. They're all inadequate in their thinking. So we can conclude, right, without the special revelation of God's word, these great worldly thinkers conclude things that challenge either God's integrity or, or human in integrity. They're, they're fundamentally wrong. They don't fully get it. They don't get the full picture. They have a limited understanding of the world. Dempster writes of these, these friends, he says, Try as they might, they cannot grasp the big picture with their limited human minds and are in need of revelation. They're in need of revelation. And we see Job himself has many interesting speeches and, and monologues in this book as he reflects on his suffering. We see Job question his creation in the first place quite frequently. And one of the prevailing questions throughout the book from Job is, as he considers his own pain, is, is why is light given to the sufferer? We see this in chapter 3, verse 20. The idea is, why did Job receive life? Why did Job receive light and blessing from the hand of God, only to have his life have such misery and, and turmoil in return? Why does this happen? Why, why, why did God bless me only for me to have affliction? I'm sure some of us can relate to this type of thinking as we've lived on this earth. And I think we can contrast this line of thinking, this is what, what Dempster does in the book, with, with David, who in Psalm 8, David is, is amazed that, that God has made humanity as, as vice regents of creation, Right? What is man that, that God is mindful of him? And we see Job is amazed that God takes the time to inflict suffering on humanity. It's as if Job believes humanity just, just needs relief from the misery of affliction. And I think it's safe to say that Job is not responding well in these laments. He's not responding perfectly, obviously. 
He's pretty clearly questioning the integrity of God and, and his own creation. And by extension, the creation of humanity because of the suffering they face. And it's amazing to me, this is still probably one of the, the, the central issue for many humans today. Maybe you've heard this question before. How can I serve or worship a God who allows so much evil to happen? How can I love a God who, who would allow this wickedness or evil to happen to his creation? To those he supposedly loves. I read a couple years ago that, that the problem of evil, this, this, this sort of question was the number one reason college students were giving for, for not... Um, finding Christianity convincing or going to the church. Which is just striking because it is what we see here all the way in the ancient wisdom literature of our Bibles. It's perplexing even to Job, who is a righteous man. But what we see as Job is, is allowed to lament and, and cry out to God is that Job becomes increasingly aware that the only way he can have a hearing or the, the, the only way he can have the ear of a transcendent God is to have some sort of arbiter to, to go between him and God. Job 16, he calls this person an, an intercessor or redeemer. And this redeemer figure becomes Job's hope and his lament and, and outcries to God. The most famous account of this is found in, in Job 19. Verses 25 through 27, which I'll read for us. It reads, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So this, this text comes right after another scathing lament and cry from Job of what he perceives as injustices committed against him. And in verse 25, he's, he, he says he knows that his Redeemer lives. It's clear here that, that Job knows that his Redeemer, his, his advocate, is God himself. Is that is who he claims he will see when the end comes for him, when his life is over. And the end result is that Job will, will finally see that, that justice is done. And he will see God face to face in his flesh, in his body. So this is a really beautiful passage and a hopeful one for all of us when we face sufferings of, of various kinds. We have a Redeemer who by faith we will see and all will be made right. One of the most interesting characters in the book of Job is Elihu. Elihu talks from chapters 32 to, to 37 in the book. So he talks after all of Job's friends talk and, and remember they, they pretty much fail to answer Job correctly in his suffering. And what we see with Elihu is that although Job is characterized as a righteous man and, and is right in many of the things he, he does and, and says 
in the book thus far. We see Job did say many things he, he ought not have said, which we've kind of chronicled so far, which angers Elihu. And I think we can, we can view Elihu as a good guy, so to speak, in the story, or, or someone who is speaking wisdom to, to Job, someone who's speaking correctly, wisely to Job. And, and Dempster lays out some indicators for us um, for us to come to that conclusion. And first is, he says, Elihu is the only person with an Israelite name and genealogy in the book. So that's, that, that would be a huge clue for us that he's a, a good guy, so to speak. Um, Dempster states he, he's linked to both Abraham and David genealogically. And he speaks right before Yahweh speaks in the sequence of the book. Which, which indicates him as a, a transition or a, a bridge to the, the holy word of God, to, to Yahweh's direct revelation to Job. The commentator Christopher Ash speaks of Elihu in this way. Ash says, Elihu is a forerunner, a warm-up act before the great speeches of God. He's not the final word in the book, but what he says is true and valuable. What he says is true and valuable. And the main concept that Elihu introduces is that an innocent, or you could say a righteous person, may still be in need of divine discipline and testing through, through different afflictions and suffering. And actually, the, the discipline and testing could be a sign of divine favor. And in fact, it is a sign of divine favor. God works through human suffering to bring humans to, to repentance and further and, and closer trust in God. And in that way, suffering is used by God out of his great mercy for those he has favor upon, for those he loves. This, this concept from Elihu is, is revolutionary, Dempster argues, from all of the ancient cultures that this book was written in the context of. And I would argue it's still very revolutionary for us today in our modern culture. And it's important to bring up again that Elihu is, is connected with Israel, with the line of Israel, because Dempster argues that what we see in Elihu through his speeches is that there is a human wisdom that can help one understand God's governance and God's ruling of the world in the face of human suffering. And this human person is associated with the people of God, right, with Israel. So we can see the connection that God's ultimate answer to, to human suffering will come from another Israelite man who is the ultimate final source of wisdom who will declare to us all things that are true, and that's Jesus Christ. And then in, in chapter 38, Yahweh speaks. The Lord shows up, and, it, and, and it's amazing as you'd expect. Chapters 38 through 39, the Lord gives pretty detailed account of the glories of creation. If you've read this, you know it's pretty intricate. There's, there's very intricate details here. He questions Job. He questions if he knows where these things come from in creation. Like, 
Does he know where each lightning bolt will go? And does he know when mountain goats give birth? And so the, the entirety of creation, from a macro level to, to, to the very smallest, to the micro level, from the big expanse of the uni- universe to the, to the tiniest details are presented to Job. And the point is, God is in complete control of everything. And Job is not. God is, Job is not. That's essentially the point. And in chapter 40, verse 1, we get an answer, really, to these questions. Questions. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. I think we should read that as a, as a rebuke of Job. God does not, God does not apologize um, for Job's suffering, right? Instead, the Lord says, you cannot ultimately question him because he's the maker, creator, sustainer of all things. Now, this can be taken too far. I don't think this means we can't cry out in pain and, and lament to God or else we would probably have to throw out half of the Psalms, maybe more. But but at the fundamental level, this is true. No human has a right to tell God what to do with his creation. And now, Job starts to get it. Once he encounters God. Funny how that goes. Job says in verse 4, I am of small account, or, or I am unworthy. And in chapters 40 and 41... We're introduced to to two gigantic creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. There is a ton, just a a massive amount of scholarly debate about the identity of these two creatures that I may have gone down a rabbit hole studying this week that didn't really help for the study. But Behemoth is a, a river and land beast, and Leviathan is a sea monster. And I take both to represent the devil or, or Satan in some way. That's where a lot of the debate is centered. Um, and the description of them in the book is quite terrifying. Dempster argues that they're, they're portrayed as totally beyond human control. They possess superhuman strength and, and terror. And the Lord proclaims in, in 41.11 that he alone can defeat these wicked enemies. The point is clear. As with, with the beginning dialogue of the book, God is in complete control of everything, even Satan, even the devil and his demons. Nothing happens outside of the Lord's hand, and he will defeat those that oppose him, even the strongest enemy that opposes him. And Job now knows everything God chooses to do God does. So nothing is out of his control, not even the greatest enemy himself, the devil. And Job repents, right at the end of the book, Job repents in sackcloth and ashes. He recognizes his wrong. And, and Dempster writes, or, or yeah, he, he now has a, a right view of God, a, a proper view of God and his providential sovereignty over all things. And Dempster writes, Job may be, 
maybe externally the same person as before the test of God, but he has been transformed internally. He has experienced the fear of God in a new sense. He's experienced the fear of God in a new sense. And at the end of the story, we see that, that Job's family, his land, and, and possessions are restored to him. And notice that there is no Satan at the end of the story like we saw him at the beginning. That this is important because on a literary level, it, it, it's powerful because the character has nothing more to say. He, he's no longer in the story, so to speak. He, he, he has no place in the story because he has been defeated. His plan, his great plan at the beginning has failed. And just like Behemoth and just like Leviathan, his demise is certain. He will be controlled, he is controlled, and eventually destroyed by the Lord. But as the book of Job makes clear, this will happen in Yahweh's way and in Yahweh's time. As we struggle with today, all of the evil that we face in the, the sinful world. So Job is a fantastic book. Really, really great. Andrea, you picked a good one to be your favorite. And it's important to our understanding of who God is and, and what God is like. And in the literary context of the Old Testament, the book of Job moves similar to the Psalms, if you remember, from, from lament to praise and has a powerful message to the, to the original audience, to the, to the exiled and, and beleaguered Israelite community and to the, to the whole world. And that is that judgment is not the last word about the exile. So just like Job, there, there, there's a mystery about Israel's suffering as well. And the chaotic powers, so you can think of, of Babylon, that, that seem to be unbeatable, sort of like, like the Leviathan figure, is firmly under the control of the Lord and will one day, one day be placed under the foot of the righteous's dominion. So I think that's how it kind of that's how it functions in the overall Old Testament narrative is it is a sort of parallel of what God is doing through the exile that exile is not the final word for the people of God. So any questions or comments about Job? Those are really good questions that I did not think about. Um, I think Dempster holds to the traditional view of where the, the chron chronological place, but I don't know what that does with the Elihu question. But that's a good question, and I, I should have thought of it. So I'm going to think about it more and look it up. It's a good question. Okay, so the next three books of the Tanakh are, are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of... Solomon, and as I stated, this is, he gives much, more, much less treatment to these books, just given their, their content to the study. And Dempster argues that these three books can be viewed together, in a sense, because of their common author, Solomon. So how do these wisdom books provide, provide commentary on the events leading up to, to the destruction of Jerusalem at the end of 2 Kings. 
Well, just as we saw at the end of the book of Job, which ended with the importance of the fear of God, so too do these books develop that, that same concept. Dempster points out that, interestingly, that, that the fear of God serves as brackets, or you can think of bookends, to um, the beginning and ending of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So, so Proverbs 1.7 states, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Ecclesiastes 12.13 states, At the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So both of these books deal with and develop this concept of, of, the, of the fear of God, which also ended the book of Job. So this, I'm saying this because they serve as kind of textual links for us that, that connects the books. You see that? Now the content is obviously quite different between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, if you've read them. Proverbs seems life affirming, while Ecclesiastes seems life-denying in some ways. Dempster writes, Proverbs sees the possibilities that life affords, Ecclesiastes of its limitations. And then these, this way, these two books, as I stated earlier, and, and taken into account with the book of Job too, they, they, they kind of balance each other out to shape our worldview as God's people, to shape our understanding of how the world works. And it shapes our view of, of a wise dominion of the creation, of what is true dominion, what is dominion that is glorifying to God. Solomon is the author, and we know that he exemplifies wisdom and, and and some of his reign as king before he, he's led astray by, by his pagan wives. And in Solomon we see a, a vice region of creation displaying to Israel, showing Israel how they are to exercise dominion, how they're to experience blessing from the Lord. And in Proverbs we see a lot of his wisdom there, a lot lots of blessing or how to live a blessed life, how to live a life um, I'm trying to think of something clever. That is blessed. <laughs> and as we saw, that, that blessing leads to, or it stems from wisdom, to, to a proper rule of the creation as humans, which is, which is what I'm arguing is, what Dempster arguing is wisdom, the proper rule of creation. And what we see, right, is that it's fundamentally found in the fear of the Lord. It's foundationally found in the fear of Yahweh. And in contrast, Ecclesiastes seems to deal with, not with the issue of blessing, but with the problem of curse. And that's, how, that's how Dempster puts it. Death and not life is the trademark of the world. Wisdom is sometimes inaccessible because of the fallenness and sin in the creation. And, and meaninglessness and, and vanity is pervasive. And simply put, what we see, and we should not expect anything different if we've been following the story since Genesis 3, but what we see in Ecclesiastes is that the world can be and is, in fact, an evil place because of the effects of sin. 
And we even see that the wicked seem blessed and the righteous curse. Solomon talks frequently about even attaining all physical prosperity, physical blessings is futile because we won't be able to keep it. The reality of death renders everything pointless. So you could say the reality of sin which leads to death renders everything futile. Which Remember that, that common refrain of the book, all is vanity. But the book is not completely full of despair and gloom, although some argue that. Or at least the response to the book, to the teaching of the book, or the response to the reality of sin and death should not lead to, to skepticism or, or, or worse, atheism or agnosticism, a, a non-belief in God because of sin. Or just a, a skepticism and apathy that just gives in to the sins of the world, that just gives in to um, all the pleasures of the world by giving in to folly and, and, and abandoning wisdom. That's not the call of Ecclesiastes. Just remember that last verse we just stated in 12, 13. The fear of the Lord is still central. The way out of death, or if you're thinking about Israel, the way out of exile that the Israelites were in is by fearing God by fearing God and being obedient to Him, by, by, by keeping His commandments. So this is the primary say, duty for humanity in both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, because it's only through proper fear of the Lord and obedience to His word, obedience to His command, that, that humanity can rightly image God, can, can have the proper dominion that God has given them. The Song of Solomon celebrates the dimensions of blessing much like the book of Proverbs, but it with a specific emphasis on, on marital blessing. A specific emphasis on marital blessing. We see the, the beauty of each marriage partner praised and there is a one flesh intimacy, one flesh transparency with each other, a complete openness with each other. Many commentators find an echo in the Song of Solomon to the, to the first married couple in the garden, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 2, where the, where the first couple was, was naked and not ashamed. Right? We see the glimpses of that, that intimacy in the blessing of marriage, which is displayed for us in this book. We can also see the connection to the blessing in the, in the paradise garden with all of, if you've read Song of Solomon, there's tons of vegetation language, which might just seem weird if you're just reading it. But I think it should point us back to the, the garden and in paradise. Dempsey argues that the book is not just about marital blessing alone, although that it clearly is about that. But... In light of the context of the whole story, and if we think about the prophetic commentary that we, that we saw, specifically in, in Je Jeremiah and, and Hosea, the love between two human partners in a marriage in this book is pointing towards or is illustrating the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. 
or, or the people of God. In Jeremiah 2, verses 1 through 2, or maybe verse 2, God said that the Israelites loved him as a bride. The Israelites loved him as a bride. So in, in the literary context, the meaning of the Song of Solomon is expanding to include the relationship between Yahweh and his covenant people, the people that he is in covenant with. So the covenant of marriage illustrates the covenant of God and his chosen people. There, there are other echoes of the prophets who, who brought up similar, similar imagery, like in Hosea, chapters 1 through 3. They're clearly about Israel being the wife of God in Ezekiel 16. And this can be a bit uncomfortable at times, maybe especially for guys, um, thinking of ourselves as the bride of God. But the point is important, obviously, because it's in God's Word. The illustration is, is important, or the connection is important. There's a, there's a, you could say, a passionate, fiery love that Yahweh has for His covenant people. That can only be illustrated in human relations with the most passionate, intimate, and close human relationship that exists, marriage. So that's the the main parallel. And in the context of exile, this song would have been a great comfort to the people of God, just like we saw with with some of the latter prophets like Hosea and Jeremiah. The ending parts of the the book have, have very hopeful promises that suggest that God will not abandon His beloved. Very similar to to texts in Hosea, which promise a, a new wedding that will take place between God and His people. So this small book here, I think, points towards the end of the exile and a future wedding, a future wedding feast when, when the Lord and His people are united again in, in fellowship, intimate fellowship. So that is Song of Solomon and the other wisdom books. Any questions or comments? Told you it would be shorter. Yeah, he definitely does that like in his the initial chapter on the argument for the Tanakh ordering of why it's important for doing biblical theology or understanding the meaning of the Old Testament. Because pretty yeah, everything you said, it matters the placement of the books for our understanding of why they're there. Which then gives us the uh, the re or understanding for the the meaning of the books. So definitely. Anything else? So the the commentary on the narrative, which I I said is is less or is more absent in the wisdom literature, um, is probably most clearly seen in the last book here in this section of the Tanakh, which is Lamentations. So Lamentations, which you're going to have to go somewhere else in your Bible, because it comes after Jeremiah and the English ordering. But Lamentations actually isn't characterized in the wisdom tradition as as wisdom literature, but it's a, a series of poems that express grief for the, the present reality of exile, divorce, and, and judgment for the people of God. 
So in that way, it's much more like um, the prophetic literature in the latter prophets. It's, it's largely believed by Christians that this book is written by the prophet Jeremiah. I think that's right, which makes sense where, where our English orderings put the book right after the prophecy of Jeremiah. But Lamentations is composed of five different, five different poems which function to return the reader to the reality of exile and death. To, to return the readers to the reality of exile and death. And Israel is described in the text with the, with the metaphor of being uh, a woman, a female, again. Sort of similar to what we just saw in Song of Solomon. Israel is described as a queen uh, daughter of Zion, virgin daughter of Judah, daughter of Judah, daughter of Jerusalem, throughout the, the, these poems, which in the context of exile reinforces the understanding that the, the wife of the Lord has now been uh, abandoned because of her persistent unfaithfulness. This also might be why Lamentations comes right after Song of Solomon, in this ordering because of the, the similar thematic elements of Israel being the wife and, and, and daughter of the Lord. And what is striking about the book of Lamentations is almost the complete loss of hope as you read through the, the poetry, through the Lamentations. The people, the city, even the king is destroyed. Which if we think about the place this book sits in the canon, that this makes sense. This is the end of the commentary reflections part of the book of the writings. And right before the narrative picks back up um, in the exile with the book of Daniel. So remember at the end of 2 Kings, we see the Davidic king Jehoiakim be freed. And there's great hope for the Davidic line and the future for the people of God after the exile because of this Davidic king's release from captivity. And Lamentations is also not without hope in its commentary. One of the most beautiful and well-known passages in probably the entire Bible, I know it's written up on the wall over there by Marty's office, is found in here in Lamentations. And I'll just read it for us. Lamentations 3 Verses 19, I'll start in 19, and I'll go through 24. The word says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. So from, from lament, from the, the lament, there, there is hope. Hope in God's kindness. Hope in God's mercies. And Dempster points out, it's important to remember, these are not general mercies and just general faithfulness of the Lord. But they're, they're specifically intended to bring to mind the specific mercies and faithfulness connected with the establishment of the Davidic dynasty. 
which brings hope to the people. So in Lamentations 3, then we have a poem, really a, a prayer of an Israelite who, who claims the mercies of the Davidic covenant, which signifies that, that though the people of God are going through unspeakable affliction and suffering, which is important, remember, it's a direct result of their unfaithfulness and sin. Despite that, they can still look forward to one whose compassionate suffering will mean that there will be comfort and consolation for God's people. There will be ultimate, final comfort and consolation for God's people, like we saw in the promises in, in Isaiah 40. So lamentation echoes much of the, of the doom and, and hope themes that we saw in all throughout the latter prophets. It's very similar in that way. So any questions on lamentations? Comments? So I was going to start Daniel, but I think I'm going to pause and hold Daniel much to Tom's sadness or maybe happiness. We can spend all the next time on Daniel. He's been asking me about Daniel. So Daniel, we're going to start Daniel next time. Um, and you guys are dismissed. Sorry for ending early again. I need to get better at timing these things. <laughs>